Playlist Studios. They come as corporate productions. It seemed to be a simple case of a robbery gone horribly wrong. They come as indie productions. And that's what Cinnamon Brown thought was going to happen after she killed her stepmom, Linda Brown. But that's not what happened. They're hosted by pairs of women. That's Georgia Hardstark. That's Karen Kilgareth. We're here to tell you a couple things. Yeah. For example. And then we'll get out of your hair. <laughs> and men. December 4th, 2006. He was alive. That means something happened between December 4th and December 5th of 2006. They've even crossed over into television. John? John. Dirty John. Why are you doing this? They're some of the most popular and profitable podcasts being made. Yep, we're talking about true crime. From LA Studios, this is Servant a Pod. I'm Nick Kwok. This week, expert Rebecca Lavoie and podcast host and producer Jonkalyn Hill on why we love to hate true crime. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Alleyist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. Jonklin Hill, Rebecca Lavoie, thank you both so much for joining me. Um, I'm eager to have this conversation as a person who is intellectually interested in true crime stuff, but who has kind of a hard time sitting with it. So first, let's talk about your personal relationship to the true crime genre. Jonklin, uh, let's start with you. Oh man, I feel like um, it started like a lot of kids did, where um, <laughs> you watched a lot of Law and Order SVU with your parents and your favorite episodes were the ripped from the headlines ones. Nice. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think now if a show is more about the policing than the victims, it makes me a little squirmy and I'm more likely to not watch it than things that focus squarely on um, the victims of crimes. Mm. So that has been a thing that has changed for me. So, so when you say policing, isn't like the investigation part of it, like suspect A, suspect B kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah. I'm more likely to be drawn to a story if I'm hearing it from the perspective of, say, a journalist who covered it hmm. or the person who experienced it just because learning about different policing techniques, knowing that, and, you know, I'm a black woman, knowing the relationship that policing can have with the black community, I get a little more squirmy now. Mm. And I find myself asking questions that kind of distract 
from the story itself because yeah. I wonder, like, how did we go about this? Like, how is this framed? Yeah. Oh, an interrogation. This person made the decision not to ask for a lawyer. Did they not know <laughs> that they could ask for a lawyer? So that sort of stuff sticks with my head more. And then when it comes to podcasting, yeah, I w- have always been a big This American Life fan, listened to it on the radio. It was the first podcast I ever downloaded. So I was familiar with Sarah Koenig, and I remember um, they played an old episode that she produced and said, like, oh, she has an upcoming podcast. I'm like, oh, interesting. So I knew about Serial before um, a lot of other people knew about it. I'm not trying to sound like a podcast true crime hipster. You you caught it on the wave up. You (laughs) caught it on the wave up. (laughs) And the next thing I knew, I had coworkers. I was working in television at the time who were like, I binged this podcast (laughs) called Serial. And I think Serial really changed the game both for podcasting and true crime podcasting. How about you, Rebecca? Uh, Because for you, like, this is like a biographical question, right? I've been thinking about this a lot because I get asked this question a lot. And I think my old answers were... Uh, unintentionally dishonest and kind of lame. So I'm going to give you the honest answer now. (laughs) I was a child of the 80s. I lived through uh, a lot of serial killers, a lot of child abduction, like sensational child abduction cases. And really the threat of being kidnapped or murdered was real for me in my childhood. (laughs) I think for a lot of people my age, I mean, really it guided so much of the type of scary messaging we got from adults. I think I think that's sort of where it was seated. Um, in the early 90s, there was an incredible two-part scripted show about John Wayne Gacy starring Brian Dennehy called To Catch a Killer. And I remember watching that and being like, oh, I'm really into this. Uh, so I, I think it goes way, way, way back. Of course, then I ended up co-authoring a bunch of true crime books with my now husband, Kevin, who was a former reporter who he, he was reporting a story in that genre. And then we just got a contract and had to sort of keep doing it. But going along with what John Cullen said, in addition to Serial before that, you know, I worked in public radio starting in 2010. I never, ever talked about my true crime reporting or writing at work because Mm. there was this fine, hard line between real journalism and quote quotes and true crime reporting. Mm. And it was kind of like embarrassing to me. And I remember people at work sort of denigrating it a little bit. And then when Criminal came out, which was like, I think, 10 months or so before Serial. Criminal, the uh, Radiotopia show by um, Lawrence Porter and Phoebe Judge. Yes. And Eric Menel was an original producer on it as well. Um, When that show came out, I was like, oh, my God, public radio has finally gotten on board with this thing that is actually a thing that everybody is interested in, but nobody wants to admit it. I got on the show Criminal. I pitched them hard and my husband and I ended up on an early episode of Criminal. Uh, And that was it. And then, of course, Serial and my podcast, Crime Writers On, launched as a review show about Serial. So Hmm. that's kind of, you know, all those threads come together. Jonklin, as a fan of the genre, have you ever felt that embarrassment that Rebecca's talking about? So my embarrassment is kind of twofold because one, True crime is something that's considered trashy by a lot of people. Hmm. Like, I will watch the documentary about a serial killer in a heartbeat. Mindhunter in a heartbeat. Good show. I think also we don't think of these as true crime, but I love shows about cults and kind of that kind of thing. Hmm. And then the other side of embarrassment, for me, it's just sort of like, ooh, how do I feel about the fact that our criminal justice system is so flawed and I'm finding like Hmm. quote unquote entertainment in it. Like those are two things that I'm constantly battling within myself, despite the Hmm. fact that if you turn on my TV right now, it will be on investigation discovery. 
<laughs> but don't you think, John Glenn, don't you think that cereal, like the biggest thing it accomplished was shifting the conversation to a conversation about potential wrongful convictions? Oh, yes. You know, that's sort of happening. I mean, there's so many podcasts out there about mm. people who shouldn't be in prison, about people who are screwed by the police. I don't think any of that content would exist either on TV, uh, Netflix or in the podcast space without cereal being such a juggernaut. Oh, for sure. I think maybe the way we think about true crime is different now. Like we look at wrongful convictions. We look at different kinds of victims of the criminal justice system. And mm. I think that's really important. I also think like I considered the first season of, um, oh, my gosh, I'm forgetting it. Uh, it was the podcast about pyramid schemes. The dream. Uh, um, the dream. The dream. I think of yeah. the first season of The Dream as a true crime podcast. Same. Well, it is literally true at a crime, right? Like, I feel that the association of true crime only being about murder is, like, kind of a misnomer a yeah, little bit. agreed. I mean, a lot of the podcasts that are coming out now that are really, really strong are about cons and about other ways that people have fleeced people. And, of course, also people just doing things to other people that you can call criminal that don't have to involve, you know, blood and murder and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, Jonklin, why do you think we're so interested in true crime as entertainment? Mm, I think that the appeal for true crime, it does the same thing that anxiety does for you, but in a way that is less upsetting for yourself in that, <laughs> um, you know, it's like, ooh, how can I prepare for the worst case scenario. As an anxious person, I, I know this <laughs> intimately. <laughs> and so I think it's a mixture of things. It's, you know, like I'm a kid of the 90s. And so we had helicopter parents who were also like, stranger danger, you will get snatched. Do not make eye contact with a person you don't know. And of course, you know that like a lot of crimes against not just children, but crimes in general, they happen within your community. Yeah. There's someone you know. Yeah. Um, but it was just this thing of like, do not get kidnapped. This is the way that you like can relate release yourself from the trunk of a car, <laughs> like use a zip tie to like release yourself. Yeah. So I think particularly for women, it's this thing of like, okay, what can I learn to keep myself from being a victim of the crime? And then I mm. think, especially as a person of color and a black person in particular, looking at the ways the criminal justice has system has failed. And it's like, ooh, how can I keep that from happening to me or a loved one? Uh, so it's like a it's self-sufficiency in the in the face of like the, a failed state, basically. Right. You, 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 you can't depend on these people to help you. So you got to help yourself. Yes. I think it's like these are these different ways that we try to look at the genre and keep these things from happening to ourselves or people we know. Hmm. I have a follow-up on that because one of the things, and I'm not disagreeing with anything you said, Jonkalin, because that that is like, and I think a lot of people feel the way you feel. And I've, you know, as somebody who's asked this question all the time, I've never thought to ask, why do we care about true crime as entertainment? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like there's there's just this acceptance of Everything is entertainment, but when you talk about crime as entertainment, it takes on a special kind of guilt. Although, if it weren't entertaining, nobody would watch it or listen to it. So I don't think that's necessarily, like, a terrible word to use uh, around mm. that. I mean, I share a lot of Jonkalin's misgivings about cop stuff. Having written four books at an era where publishers would only accept a book if there was a hero cop in it, like, mm. I now would write those ex 
extremely differently. And even Serial failed in this way. Serial didn't think it was telling a wrongful conviction story because they just took the police at their word for much mm. of the podcast. But I do like that we're at least even thinking about it. I mean, to me, that's a huge amount of progress. Yeah. And I think part of the reason maybe that is their hesitancy of like feeling bad. True crime is a genre that women like. And mm. when women like things, yes. we demonize them. I love Real Housewives of Potomac. And Same. everyone's like, big fan, big garbage. Fan. <laughs> and it's like, is it because women like it? Probably. That's <laughs> majorly a factor. That's likely a factor. Um, big fan of Salt Lake City right here. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> boy, a that's, season. Yeah, that's, let's leave that for after the show. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, Rebecca, when there's a bit of like a historical arc here that, that, you, that you seem to be sketching out here. So, how how would you characterize the difference of how we think about true crime right now? Not just podcasts, but like in general, because I think it, it's not lost on me that like a lot of really sort of meaty Netflix like phenomena are at least variations on a true crime genre. Target King, I guess, is also like a variation on a true crime genre. Yes. How would you sort of like <laughs> having sort of been a publisher of these books uh, or, or an author of these books uh, over a stretch of time? How yep. has that changed? Well, I think the reason why those things, I think, can be called true crime, even if they aren't technically, but they certainly were born of it, is because of the structure of stories. You have somebody who thought to do something bad, and there's a lot to unpack there about how they got there. Then they did the bad thing, and there's a lot to unpack there. And then there is an investigation with twists and turns, and then there's, you know, maybe justice at the end. So it's a real arc, like an operatic arc. Hmm. And the thing that that I think Serial really did and like other really great true crime podcasts have done, not that I'm saying there are thousands of great ones because there are certainly aren't, is that idea of I cannot wait for the next chapter, right? So mm. that is like the, the story structure that I think a lot of storytellers in audio have adopted directly from true crime storytelling. But I also think that, you know, in the in the long sordid history of true crime, which has been forever, um, it has been a, a strong divide between the male, quote, literary true crime mm. writers and reporters, like Truman Capote or uh, really anybody who wrote an article about any kind of mm. crime. Yeah, any any sort of New Yorker feature that's about somebody dead. Yeah, yeah. Yep, it was all they're all men and then you had when women did it, they were relegated to paperbacks in hmm. airport bookstores and rule it would be a good example of that. This sort of juggernaut. I mean, she owned the true crime book brand for decades and it was firmly marketed as trash. So, I mean, I think there really is something there, sort of the gendered stuff and, you know, I think the reason why uh perhaps Women like it so much is because it's like the cycle now. We've been told, like, this is a woman's thing. Like, all the advertisers in every true crime podcast are all, like, directed toward women. So that's something that I think about a lot for sure. But I, I do think it is the storytelling, the richness of the story, and the epic and operatic nature of the story that is what makes it appealing and is what makes other kinds of writing now basically borrowing from the genre. Hmm. Jacqueline, do you agree? Oh, for sure. I think that's definitely it. You know, uh, I think of all of the, like, GQ articles that are, like, deep dives on crimes mm. and how it's like, what a great piece of journalism. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and it is. They are great pieces of journalism, but are when it's marketed to women, are we getting that? For a long time, we didn't get those same articles and say, like, a Cosmo. Why is that? Especially mm. when this is a genre that appeals to women so much. Mm. Okay, so here's part of my uncomfortable relationship with true crime. 
it feels weird to enjoy a show that commoditizes death, you know? Um, I'm thinking about those shows that just plow through different stories about murder. Like, they feel cobbled together, you know? It's kind of what I think about when I hear true crime most of the time, which is unfair. Uh, because when I also, when I think about all the other kinds of stories that true crime encompasses, you know, I realize I'm, a, I'm like, I'm a big consumer of those shows. Do you think, like, this is a branding problem for the genre in some way? I think a lot of it comes down to, and I'm sorry, Nick, please take this with a loving intention, I, I, which I mean it. Please stab me in the face. A lot of it comes to being precious and snobbery in media, generally speaking. Let's go. Let's I go. mean, there <laughs> there are a million basic cable channels, like, and many of them have shows on them that you just confess to loving, mm. right? Um podcasts are no different, right? There are some very thoughtful, highly journalistic, deeply reported, I call public radio style of podcasts that a lot of us in the industry like to think are the only things that count as, quote, real podcasts, Mm. right? There are 500,000 other podcasts that, like, you might look at, even not in the true crime genre, and be like, that's not a real podcast. That's not a real podcast. But what that really comes down to is, you know, maybe it's not for you, but also we as media folks have kind of decided that there's a hierarchy and class structure Hmm. within audio storytelling the same way we did when there were books and the same way we did around magazine articles. And I think that's what it points to. But I do think in terms of the branding, um, certainly the sort of... uh, glut of true crime podcasts being made by amateurs reading articles, all of that kind of stuff hasn't helped. Mm. But it's in its infancy. I mean, a lot of things started this way with a lot of people trying it out and failing and a lot of people trying it out and just doing okay. Um, but I, I I really do think that there's, there's sort of a, a classist media thing there that is not new. After the break, the gold standards of true crime media. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. So, Jonklin... You're now a true crime podcast host of your show, Through the Cracks. Could you tell me more about it? Through the Cracks is a podcast about the gaps in our society and the people who fall through them. So looking at these systemic inequities, the things that were put in place to keep them from happening and how they have not necessarily worked the way they're supposed to. 
The first season tells the story of Relisha Rudd, who is an eight-year-old girl who disappeared from a homeless shelter in D.C. and was missing for 18 days before anyone realized something she was wrong. Um, and it looks at her family. It looks at the social services that touched her life because hmm. there were quite a few. It also gets into things like eviction, the state of the shelter, how the person who she was seen in the care of last, who was a janitor at the shelter, came into her life and sort of um, got her family to trust him. So it looks at all these different systems. And the way I explain it is that it's less of a who done it, but a how done it. It's asking mm. the question, how could something like this have happened? And your show does all the things you were talking about that you value in good true crime media. Um, it's victim-focused, but you're also drilling down on how the systems in place failed, Relisha. When you sat down to map out the story, how did you think of it fitting into the bigger true crime genre? Or did you kind of have to, like, work against those common tropes? Yeah, so I knew from the very beginning that this was a true crime podcast because, you know, I consider In the Dark a true crime podcast, and that's, mm. like, some real deep investigative stuff. Or um, Missing and Murdered from the CBC, I consider true crime, and that was another story highlighting, like, crimes that happened to women and girls of color. Uh, when we were sitting down to kind of think of structure and all these things, I was very nervous because there were so many tropes that I was afraid of falling into, especially with Relicious story. Like, there was one instance where we were sitting down and we were like, okay, what are podcasts, shows, books that you think of that you want to be and that you don't want to be? And mm. one thing that I didn't want to be, um, I don't know if you guys ever listened to A Very Fatal Murder from The Onion. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, and I was like, please don't be, I mean, and it's, you know, a parody, but I was like, please don't be a very fatal murder. Please do not be a very <laughs> fatal murder. Like, that was something that was always in the back of my head. Did you encounter what uh, Rebecca was saying of the sort of like snobbishness around the station? Not to, not to put you on the spot, but like, I'm, I'm curious as to what the dynamic was. I mean, I think it was the first, like this is the first investigative podcast we've done, period. Hmm. So while there may have been some of that, I think it was just the fact that it's so new. And we're all novices. Like this is the first time I've done a big investigative project, every single like producer with a hand in it, it's the first time we've done this. So there was, I think we were too paralyzed by our own fear of inadequacy to get <laughs> snobby about it. <laughs> um, so I think that's where we landed on that. Uh, Rebecca, have you, have you heard the show? I have heard the show. In fact, I think it's great. You're lucky that you are too busy. To, we definitely experienced that when we were making Bear Brook at NHPR. Like the uh, the reflex of Jason Moon and, and Taylor Quimby, who like did most of the production on it, to say this isn't a true crime podcast. I'm like, stop saying that. That's what's going to make it <laughs> successful. What is the matter with you? <laughs> but yeah, there's definitely that. That's a thing. But no, I think the work you're doing is great. And I am surprised to hear that this is the first investigative narrative thing that you've done because it doesn't sound like it. Oh, thanks. That means a lot. I um, I say this all the time and my colleagues will be like, it's not a risk. But I just know, <laughs> I mean, like I'm like pretty upfront when it comes to talking about like race and gender and these things. And mm. not a lot of true crime podcast hosts look like me, specifically mm. at legacy media organizations. Mm. And also when I'm not doing this, I'm a producer for 1A. I'm not typically like out in the field reporting. Mm. They are skills I have because of previous jobs I've had. But it is not lost on me that, you know, you get a high reward when you take a high risk. And people aren't taking that many high risks on black women 
public radio producers because one, there's five of us, and then like they have us like stay in a particular lane. So mm. none of that is lost mm. on me. What do you think is like the gold standard North Star of true crime podcast that you want your show um, and other podcasts to aspire to be? Hmm, I would say, I would say in the dark. Like mm. in the dark is you know, like first season, second season, out of this world. I remember my friend told me, um, and, you know, I'm like, I'm carving my own lane. I'm doing my own thing. But she was like, this is like a black in the dark. And I'm like, that's actually a really great uh, compliment. So <laughs> thank you. I will take it. Because, that's your log line. <laughs> yeah. The black in the dark. Well, well, what about you, Rebecca? Well, in the dark, season two, honestly, is the best example. Um, because they probably have to put a moratorium on, on well, no, <laughs> the dark no. season two. Well, yeah, yeah. well, here's why. Okay, so they they overcome a lot of obstacles in making you buy into that story. The first huge one is that it's a bunch of white people who came from uh, Minnesota down to Mississippi. And mm. my first question when I heard the very first episode is, why are they telling this story, right? Mm. They... <laughs> overcame that in four minutes when they told me that they all moved there and had been living there for a year and had completely immersed themselves in the community and like really struggled to understand what made the community run. That is a huge barrier to overcome because the thing that I usually look for when I'm looking for a really great show or what makes a great show is why is this person telling the story? Because that matters in audio more than it matters in any other medium because mm. that person's in your ear, they're your guide. And yeah. in the dark, the team came at it with such a strong journalistic point of view where they were so transparent about the fact that this was journalism, not advocacy. And like as a listener, they, I, they, I bought that. Like I bought everything that they put in because they showed us all their work. So that is the standard for me. What about outside of podcasts? Um, what is your gold standard of true crime media in general? My real, like, North Star for true crime media period is the original first episodes of the documentary The Staircase, which I call hmm. the Citizen Kane of true crime. Hmm. That's an <laughs> excellent choice. But the reason that is so fantastic is that as a viewer, in those first episodes, the first series, second series kind of goes off the rails, you are completely immersed in the defense. They also interview the prosecution. And at the end of every episode, I remember at the end of episode one being like, he did it. And of episode two being like, no way he did it. Episode three, he did it. The viewer is taken along sort of the doubt journey that the jury should have been taken along, but wasn't mm. because of all the failures in that court. But I just think it's spectacular in almost every way because it's immersive. Uh, it makes you care about people you shouldn't care about. And it makes you uh, wonder all the time whether or not this guy did it. And that's that's really suspenseful. Jonklin? Okay. Do I have to pick just one? Yeah, let's go with two. Let's go with two. Okay, we're going to go with two. All right. Um, I would say, even though there are some things, and it's been a while since I watched it with it, I would say I think the jinx from HBO was done exceptionally mm. oh, well. Man. And then... Impact-wise, I would say Surviving R. Kelly. Hmm. I think that was done very well. It's a very upsetting watch, but hmm. I think it just opened eyes for a lot of people, and it started a conversation about something that had been whispered, been an open secret. Like, we know this has happened, and it was like, okay, we're going to tell you to the extent that this has happened. I'm glad you brought up the impact part of this um, because I think there's like this subgenre of true crime shows whose purpose is to affect the outcomes in, some, in these cases. Um, what kind of impact do you want a true crime show to have on you and then maybe like on a larger scale? You know, 
I want to learn something that surprises me. One of the reasons why I love The Staircase so much is because it brought a lot of that stuff to light insofar as that it did something about sort of underground hookup culture. It did something about blood spatter evidence being BS and how evidence labs are, you know, you know, really in bed with the prosecution and are not working for the defense. And it also just sort of looked at how a defense works when you have money. When mm. All of these other stories we see, like how it works when you have no resources. So I asked questions. I found myself really like wanting to get to know the lawyer a little bit better and wanting. So to me, that's what makes it work. I mean, there are advocacy podcasts that have had a huge impact. I mean, the best example of that is Undisclosed. Undisclosed yeah. Full disclosure, I do work with that team, but they're three lawyers specifically doing advocacy in their own very, very detailed, boring for me, but it's a very popular <laughs> way. And they've helped get 10 people out of prison. I mean, how can you say that that's not good? Mm. Um, even if you don't like listening to it, it is doing something that is real. What about you, Jonklin? Um, what impact do you hope to have with Through the Cracks? I would say just like the learning aspect, I think. Mm. And I think that's what I want people to take away from Through the Cracks. I want them to come away having learned something, even, you know, especially if you do not live in D.C., learning about how does the fact that D.C. is not a state impact our homelessness services? Mm. Or even saying, hey, black girls tend not to be cared for. Are there any black girls in my life that I could be looking out for and mm. making sure they're okay? What are some steps I could be taking? Or children in general in my life. Is there anything weird I see that I don't speak up about? Maybe I could speak up about the weird thing. I think mm. that's what I really want people to walk away with. Last question here. Where do you want to see the, the genre go from here on out? Uh, Rebecca, let's start with you. I want to see more great podcasting companies unabashedly doing more of this work. I really do. I really want there to be uh, an epi a show like that has the muscle of something like Wind of Change or, you know, the next big thing coming from Gimlet, if it ever happens or whatever, kind of unabashedly saying this is a true crime investigation. This is a criminal justice investigation. What I don't want to hear anymore is hosts and reporters apologizing for mm. not being a, quote, true crime person or a true crime reporter. But I just found this story really interesting and I wanted to tell it. Guess what? You are doing true crime. <laughs> so I, I really would like to see sort of a, a, a deeper commitment because these stories are, A, popular and they help you get subscribers and listeners and uh, really can do a lot in teaching people how journalism works. So I would really like to see big studios who are making great work, like my favorite producers, like triple down on this and do it fearlessly and push a lot of the junk down on the true, 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 the true crime chart. <laughs> Jacqueline, how about you? What do you want to see more from the genre? Yeah, I think more resources. I hope more news organizations and podcasting companies take the genre seriously because that's how you get good work. And I think the investigative part is really interesting because I was interviewing a former Metropolitan Police officer and he was saying, you know, there was this reporter who I felt like I was working the case with. Like mm. there is not a lot of difference a lot of times between an investigative reporter and a detective. The major difference is access because the police department isn't going to necessarily always answer your questions mm. as reporters, you're an investigator. And I think if we just lean into that, more and more journalists will become comfortable with the true crime genre and, re and realize, oh, I've been doing this all along anyway. 
All right, I'll, I, I'm convinced. I'll be, uh, I'm going to get off of being an asshole about the true crime genre. <laughs> I appreciate the both of you at this conversation, and I'm excited to listen to the rest of Suda Cracks and I dive more into the true crime world. Thank you so much for, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Serving a Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at alias.com slash servingthepod. The show is produced by Andrea Swahe, James Trout, and John Perotti at Rococo Punch. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at Alias Studios, including Christian Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Serving a Pod is a production of Alias Studios. River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.